Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book Twice Freed by Patricia Sanjin with permission of Christian Focus Publications, and we are on Chapter 15. Next morning, Onesimus went up to the house and told Aphia that his mother was ill and too weak to rise. Aphia was not surprised, for she had known for a long time that her dear slave was dying. Nerissa did not rise from her bed again. The hut was small and airless, and Athea wanted to bring her to her own cool home and care for her there with her own hands, but Nerissa refused to leave her son. So Athea visited her two or three times a day and nursed her tenderly, and when Onesimus came home from work, he often found them talking together, and they talked like pilgrims about to set out on some happy journey of their beautiful destination and of the loved one who waited them. Onesimus went about his duties in agony of sorrow and remorse, and at night he would sit late beside his mother and tend to himself. Neither had ever mentioned the blow that he had given her, but one evening when he was pouring spring water over her hot hands, his wretchedness was so acute that it cried out to her without words. She pushed aside the basin and took his hands in both of hers. Do not grieve, my son, she said. I know how you how you felt and how heavy is the burden of your slavery. And when Christ finds you, and you, you will know it too, why I acted as I did. It was not the blow you dealt me that made me so ill. I have been sick for a long time and have known that I should soon fall asleep in Jesus. And, oh, my son, how glad I shall be to go, if it were not that I fear to say goodbye to you forever. He clung to her, weeping like a little boy. He had not really realized until now that she was dying. Mother, will you forgive me? Peace, my son. My life is already in Christ, and I shall go home. But you are more to me than life, and how shall I rejoice if you are not coming? She sank back, exhausted, and soon fell into a feverish sleep. But he lay beside her for a long time, sorrowing and wondering and afraid. His blow had made no impression on her love for him. Indeed, she scarcely seemed to remember it. If human love could be so unquenchable and forgetful of injury, what of that divine love? Perhaps, after all, he would not cast it off as easily as he had imagined. The end came quite soon. A soft summer rain was falling, and she woke suddenly just before dawn. What is that noise, she asked. The rain, answered Onesimus. It is a good thing the hay is in. I thought it was the sound of footsteps running to meet me, she said. The gate is open, and I know now who it was that Stephen saw. But I turned and looked back, and I saw you following hard after in the way. So now I can enter into peace, and you, my son, and a violet fit of of coughing cut her short, and after that she lay very still. Onesimus sat beside her until he could see her face by the first pale light. Then he knew what had happened, and he ran to awaken Aphia. They robed her in white and buried her in the earth, according to the new custom of the Christians. Nobody sorrowed greatly, for they would very soon see her again, and the hymns they sang were full of praise for the glory and rest they would all soon share. Only Onesimus sobbed out his very heart alone in the canyons and wished he could die, yet he feared to die. But he turned a stony expression to the world and hurt Artipus, intolerably by the way he kept him and his sympathy at arm's length. Only the pain in his 
and Onesimus's eyes and the whiteness of his face could not be hidden. And Athea and Philemon spoke of it one night in their bedroom. That poor boy, said Athea, I half fear for his reason. He looks as though he will never smile again. I know, answered Philemon. He will not accept the comfort we have in Christ, but a change might do him good. The shearing is finished, and in two days' time I am sending Glaucus to Laodicea with the last bale of wool. He must bring back the money, and he will need a trusty bodyguard. The boy can go with him. Onesimus received the news without any show of pleasure, but his spirits lifted a little. If he could see her and tell her about his mother, he thought he would find some comfort. It was most likely that he would see her, for the warehouse was in the middle of the city, and her house was in the outskirts, and Glaucus could no doubt keep a sharp eye on him. Still, he was young and hopeful, and nothing was impossible. Onesimus was up before dawn on the great day, dressed with special care. He had the beast laden before Glaucus appeared, weary, blinking, and grumbling. He waddled behind the horse, and Onesimus strode to the, in the front, leading the way into the lower valley. It was a strange, sultry weather, and no birds sang in the poplars. The hot mist seemed to rise from the fields, and clouds lay low on the mountains. Thunder rumbled round the valley. The gods must be angry with us, remarked Onesimus. I expect there will be a real downpour on the way home. He said this purely to annoy Glaucus, for he had an unholy fear of offending his own Christian god, and he enjoyed the look of distress on the bailiff's face. Glaucus was old and fat and hated a, a wedding, but he never dared reprove Onesimus for anything he said, for from that day to this each had guarded the other's secret. They paused for a hasty meal outside the city, but it was not long, for the weather was getting more and more strange. The sky was a smoke red like some weird lost sunset, and all, although it was only after midday. The streets were almost empty, for the air in the city were, was oppressive, and most of the people were indoors taking a siesta. Glaucus, panting and perspiring and glancing at the sky, was very unhappy indeed. "'Go and have a rest,' Master Bailiff said Onesimus. "'Do your business with Master Poleman, and then spread out the bale in the warehouse courtyard and have a sleep.' I will wander about the city for an hour or so and come back in time to reach home before dark. The evenings are long and light, and there's no need to hurry. This evening will not be as other evenings, said the old man nervously. No, no, stay beside me, young man, and let us start home as soon as we possibly can. This is sick, unhealthy weather, and I fear a storm. They reached the warehouse just in time, for Poleman was about to go home for dinner. He greeted them somewhat contemptuously, for he thought anyone connected with Philemon, the Christian, must be a fool. But in money matters, Glaucus was no fool, and he watched keenly as the wool was weighed and the payment was calculated and, calculated and counted and recounted. But at last they were all out in the street, bowing farewell to each other. Glaucus, impatient to be off, Onesimus frantically seeking some excuse to stay. And it was then they felt the first tremor. It was a small one, but they all knew what it meant. Earthquakes were common in the Lacus Valley. Already white-faced people were pouring out from the doors of their houses, and the voices of women screaming for, for their children were heard within, and on all lips were the same cry. Make for the open spaces! Make for the market! Keep clear of the houses! Glaucus fled, for it was amazing that anyone so old and fat could run so fast. Onesimus seized the horse's bridle and dragged him weighing, winning 
towards the central of the market. Poloman stood hesitating in the agony of indecision, and then came the second, stronger tremor. The big houses shuddered and righted themselves. Two or three of the smaller ones fell in like a pack of cards. Onesimus turned to see whether Poloman was following and saw him dash back into the warehouse, crying like a man possessed, My gold! My gold! O oh, ye gods, spare my gold! Then came the third, last, mighty tremor, and the whole city began to collapse like a rumble and crash around the fugitives in the market square. The warehouse had suddenly disappeared, and in its place stood a great heap of stone and brick. Onesimus shuddered as he thought of Master Poloman lying far below the stone and plaster, clutching his gold with his dead hands. But his mind was concerned neither with Poloman nor with Glaucus, trembling and gasping in the middle of the market, nor with his own safety. The big houses on the circumference of the town were less damaged than those in the center, and she might well be safe. But whether she was above ground or under the rubble, he must reach her at once. His own life was of little account. In fact, his heart leapt at the thought of laying it down for her sake. He slipped the horse's halter over a post and struck out for the Heratopolis gate. He knew the way well, for he had trodden it so often in his imagination, but even so it was hard going. Whole streets were blocked and people knelt on the rubble, weeping and calling out on the gods as they scrambled with their hands. In the places where great pillars swayed unsteadily and the townsfolk were swaying to the gates to take refuge in the meadows and the hills. Over the heaps of stone, brick, plaster, and dust, over great slabs of marble, through the crowds of dazed men and women and crying children. Onesimus fought his way to the house on the hill. He could see from some distance away that the roof had fallen in, but the walls were still standing. He strolled in at the gate, and she ran straight to him and clung to him. My father, my father, she cried, where is he? Have you seen him, and is he safe? He looked down at her ashen face, her hair and a dress still white with plaster, and a great bruise swelling up on her forehead. He could not tell her the truth at once. Has the warehouse fallen? I believe that most of the houses in the center fell. She gave a groan and covered her face with her hands. Mr. Serena, there may be yet another tremor. The people are flocking to the gates. It is better that we go. If you like, I will take you back with me to Colossae, and Mistress Afia will care for you. She shook her head. No, no, she cried. My father may yet come, and I must wait for him. They will dig in the ruins, and whether dead or alive, I must see him again. But you must wait outside the gate. Where is your governess? I have had no governess this past year. The slaves all ran away as fast as they could. Take me to Euphron's house, hut, Onesimus. He is my father's shepherd, and his wife will take me in. There is no one else. Her natural control was coming back to her, and she had ceased to cling to him. Despite her unkept appearance, she stood there like some lonely little queen, facing her fate with dignity. Her heart ached to take, take her in his arms and comfort her, but he dared not presume on her plight. Never before had his slavery seemed such an insuperable obstacle. Come, Irina, he said, gently taking her hand, for her eyes were still fixed on the cratered road to the town, and she lingered. We must go now at once. I will take you to your shepherd and his wife and leave you there in safety, and there is no time to lose. One more tremor and the gate may fall. She came at once, and he led her out into the street, drawing her on through the crowds. Most of the people were heading to Heratopolis or Colossae, and some of them, too, exhausted to travel, 
or wounded were planning to camp by the road. Yufran's wattled hut was off the beaten track in a small grove of trees. It was a peaceful place surrounded by lawns of wildflowers where the sheep grazed. The trimmers had barely shaken the hidden valley, but Yufran and his wife, Antonia, were already climbing the slopes towards the town, and Irina, letting go of Onismus' hands, ran straight into the old woman's arms, weeping. My father, she sobbed, the warehouse has fallen, and I think he is dead. Then you shall come with us, little mistress, and be our daughter until the day when we can restore you to your inheritance. See, I will take you back to our house where you can rest, and Yufran, you go to the town and seek further news of Master Pullman. And whether you find homeless or motherless little ones, bring them here, and we shall shelter them for Christ's sake. She turned back and led Irina into the hut. It was clean and cool, strode with rushes, and Antonia laid her on the straw pallet and brought her milk and bathed her bruise and comforted her as one comforts a little lost child. And then as the old woman turned, she noticed Onesimus lingering in the doorway. She looked at Arena questionably, and as she did so, she traced a swift sign with her finger on the pillow, and Arena almost impeccably shook her head. Come in, boy, said Antonio kindly. Sit and rest a while and tell us more of the disaster. You yourself look white and shaken. Are you a citizen of Laodicea, and has your home fallen? Onesimus ran to the doorway and told them all he knew, except that Poleman had died trying to rescue his gold. He had not the heart to tell them that. It would come to light soon enough. And now, what next? There's nothing to stay for. Irina was safe. Yufran would soon return with a collection of howling wharfs and orphans. Antonia had gone to the well to fetch fresh water, and he and Irina were alone. Well, I had better go, he said, rising and going over to the pallet where she lay. He gave her his hand and the gold greeting. Goodbye, little mistress Irina. We shall meet again. She looked up, arrested, and a faint color tinged her white cheeks. He had come to her, stood by her like a rock in the storm, and she suddenly realized that when the ceiling had crashed on her, she had fled out alone into the garden and found herself forsaken. She had known he would come, and having found him, she had known she was safe. She wanted him to stay forever, but she was fourteen now, and it would be unmaidenly to say so. So she just held his hand in both of hers and said, Thank you, Onesimus. I... I knew you would come, and we shall meet again. He let go of her hand and stumbled out into the early evening, his blood thundering in his eyes, smarting, and a mighty resolve growing in his heart. So she had known he would come. She had not forgotten. In her terror and fear of death, she had remembered him and known that he would come. Now nothing shall stand in his way. He would go away now tonight and never return until he could walk through those gates of Laodicea as a free man and claim her. The city was strangely quiet apart from the pitiful little groups tearing at the stones and rubble with bleeding hands, while slaves dug frantically beside them. The lower streets were partly flooded by fountains and sewers, and a sour smell hung over everything. Onesimus found Glaucus and his horse still standing in the middle of the market, as the old man had been too afraid to move. He was very angry with Onesimus, and as usual, he dared not show it. Come, come, cried Glaucus, his teeth still chattering so he could hardly speak. It's high time we started for Colossae. The night will overtake us before we reach the upper plain. Where have you been, Onesimus? Never mind where I've been, replied the boy. Hoist yourself up on the horse and we'll go. 
Then he lifted the old man into the saddle and led the frightened horse over the ruins to the southern Syrian gate. They were halfway down the hill to the highway when he suddenly jerked on the bridle and drew the horse behind a, se- a screen of cypress trees. Glaucus, he said in a tone of authority he had never used before, hand over the money in your wallet. The old man's eyes suddenly started out of his head and his face turned a muddy yellow. The money, Onesimus? Our master's money? Are you mad? No, not mad, just in a hurry. Hand it over, Glaucus. If you refuse, I shall go straight to our master on our return and tell him all I know. You have always hated me and now it is your chance to get rid of me. Go home alone and tell Philemon that Polaman and I and the gold perished under the warehouse. The frightened bailiff made one more attempt. I, too, have a secret, Onesimus. If you tell of me, I shall tell of you. For the love of God, end this foolish talk and take me home. Glaucus said the old man, Hand over the money or I shall strangle you. I care not what you tell me, for I have nothing to lose. Christians do not brand, and as for the rods, I tasted them when I was young and weak, and I can stand behind against them without flinching. I care not a straw for my reputation, but you, Glaucus, do you relish being beaten by some low menial and your stewardship being taken away from you? And what about your comfortable, honorable old age? And what about your cozy seat in the church? Think twice, Glaucus. He needed no further persuasion. Slobbering and trembling, the old man flung the packet of gold on the ground and turned to the horse's head. Go, thief, villain, he shouted with a most unchristian-like curse, and may you never come back again. That will depend on how well you can persuade them that it is useless to search for me, replied Onesimus. He skipped down the hill, turned his back on Colossae. The open highway and the wide world lay before him. Tomorrow we'll be reading chapter 16. I love you. I'm praying for you, and we'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.